part of the curse, I suppose, was knowing so much, knowing how rotten it is and what a colossal waste of taxpayers' money um, and what a travesty this whole reform is. So do you do something with that knowledge or do you just turn your back on it and look after yourself and raise chickens? Two years ago, Marianne Slattery was an unassuming senior bureaucrat living just outside Canberra with her three children and many chooks. Now she's on national television as a sought-after but still reluctant guest. Marianne Slattery was the Director of Environmental Water Policy at the Basin. Marianne Slattery, who's done the report. Marianne Slattery is a softly spoken brainiac who doesn't give interviews very Marianne often. Marianne Slattery, a senior water researcher at the Australia Institute. She's a former director of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. For someone who would rather shun the limelight, how did Marianne Slattery go from Director of Environmental Water Policy at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority to public Public whistleblower. I don't actually call myself a whistleblower. Hello, I'm Jennifer Macy, and this is How to Make a Whistleblower, a special three-part podcast mini-series by the Australia Institute, where we investigate what happens to the whistleblower after the whistle has blown. What happens to the person who blew the lid on fraud, corruption, or mismanagement by a company or government department? Often there's a headline-generating public scandal. Sometimes there might be a government inquiry or an organisation will be forced to make changes. But too often the whistleblower's life is left in ruins. So how was it different for Marianne Slattery, when so many other whistleblowers faced jail, career ostracism and even poverty? How did Marianne land on her feet? She was... I would say, extremely unassuming. And then every time I asked her to explain what a report was about, she would just blow my mind. I mean, when Marianne arrived, she spoke flawless and endless bureaucraties. In in our little ignored corner of the world, Marianne's a rock star to us. You know, she has a, a kind of cult following because she's representing those of us who have been downtrodden and forgotten and voiceless and powerless. She's a key figure now in the ongoing revelations and understanding of how water is being mismanaged in Australia. In this three-part miniseries, we'll explore how blowing the whistle can sometimes blow up your life. How one whistleblower and a program of research have helped regional communities. And how having a job and a team made all the difference. The former customs official was convicted of leaking information about flaws in the security operations at Sydney Airport. If you've been watching the news, you'll know it's not a good time to be a whistleblower in the public sector in Australia. ATO whistleblower is facing six life sentences for tapping... Several high-profile cases are making headlines. Richard Boyle, a public servant working in the Australian Tax Office, blew the whistle on practices that unfairly targeted small businesses. Since blowing the whistle, he's now facing a staggering 161 years in prison, almost as much as serial killer Ivan Milat. In another high-profile case, an Australian secret intelligence service agent, known as Witness K, revealed that Australia spied on Timor-Leste in 2004 during negotiations about drilling for oil in the Timor Sea. 
Both Witness Kay and his lawyer, Bernard Caleri, are facing conviction. The Attorney-General has defended the decision to charge a, whistle, a whistleblower. Yeah, that's right, Laura. This relates to the whistleblower known as Witness Kay and his barristers. And David McBride, the whistleblower who leaked information to the ABC about alleged war crimes by Australian troops, is also facing severe penalties. Those leaks prompted the controversial police raid on the ABC headquarters in Sydney. And there's a raid happening right here at the ABC right now. Just a... I am a patriot. I believe in this country. I think what I did was the patriotic duty to stand up for what's right about this country. But even in the less high-profile cases, for some whistleblowers, the outcome, if not jail terms, is often long terms of unemployment. That didn't stop him paying a very high price for raising his concerns. Alan Brian Martin, uh, two titles. One is Vice President of Whistleblowers Australia. The other is Emeritus Professor of Social Sciences at the University of Wollongong. Brian Martin has written the Whistleblower's Handbook, as well as numerous submissions to government inquiries calling for stronger protections for whistleblowers. What happens is, first, they often lose their job, or maybe just a demotion, limited career prospects. Uh, so there's financial cost, and if they go to court to try and get some compensation, that's often very costly and hard time getting a new job. So there's a financial impact. There's an associated impact on their personal life. So relationships come under a lot of stress. A few whistleblowers then start uh, having too much alcohol. and But probably the biggest impact is psychological. He describes whistleblowers as society's warning system. You need pain to tell you that there's a problem. Basically, they're saying there's a problem here and we better deal with it. Just investigate. Whistleblowers don't often know for sure that something wrong has happened. They just say, there might be something wrong here, please investigate. Thing is, if problems sit and fester, and they do, then you get big-time corruption. It just continues. And you can look at the banks in Australia, financial institutions have been doing that for years. But you look at companies like Enron, where you've got one of the whistleblowers of the year, the person who spoke out, but it was way too late. People weren't speaking out early to nip the corruption before it it led to the downfall of the entire organisation. Unkind, underfunded, unacceptable. The Aged Care Royal Commission's interim report confirmed... It's been more than a year since Ryan Lowe sat in the witness box at the Banking Royal Commission. Why you think it took a Royal Commission mm. to provoke that kind of critical self-examination? It's a good question. If it feels like there's a new Royal Commission almost every day investigating wrongdoing into banks, aged care, water or disability, and that things are getting worse in Australia, that's because it probably is. Transparency International produces an annual report ranking 190 countries on their Corruption Perception Index. Uh, Serena Lillywhite and I'm the CEO of Transparency International Australia. Serena Lillywhite says Australia's ranking has been slipping for the past seven years. So what this suggests is a really worrying trend that the way Australia is perceived in its capacity to tackle 
bribery and corruption is sliding. We used to be in the top 10 countries in the world in terms of how we were viewed for our ability to tackle bribery and corruption, and we've now slipped out of that top 10. Uh, So that is a really worrying trend. She says without whistleblowers, many of these reports of misconduct, corruption or fraud would never have come to light. Without whistleblowers, we probably wouldn't even hear about many of these fairly scandalous stories that have hit the press, certainly over the last 12 months. Uh, And whistleblowers have really, I guess, gained um, some level of of, uh, recognition, if you like, as being absolutely vital to a healthy democracy in Australia. A number of advocates are threatening to boycott the commission, accusing two of the seven commissioners of a conflict of interest, given they managed and oversaw the very systems that allowed people with disabilities to be abused. These commissioners are going to have to be investigating themselves. Ben Oquist, Executive Director of the Australia Institute. Too often, when a whistleblower blows a whistle, the public policy debate is improved and their life is ruined, and they don't have a future. That's Ben Oquist, the Executive Director at the Australia Institute, where Marianne now works as the senior water researcher. And almost always you see once a whistleblower blows the whistle, their life deteriorates, their life is made worse. I think the opposite has happened with Marianne. But first, how did Marianne Slattery become a whistleblower? I don't actually call myself a whistleblower. Um, um, so I'm a chartered accountant by profession. Um, really wanted to do something good for the world rather than sit around and figure out how to make um, you know, other shareholders money, more money. So I was really interested in you know, doing something you know, sustainable that was going to you know, help the world. This winter has failed to be the drought breaker that farmers had been hoping for. Murray-Darling Basin Commission says the river system is getting worse again. There's also concern that rising salinity in the It was Murray sort of the beginning of the water reforms when the National Water Initiative had just been signed and the Murray-Darling Basin Commission at that stage had advertised for a water accountant um, and that was really exciting because that was an opportunity for me to combine my accounting knowledge with doing something sustainable. I got the job, moved moved from Townsville down to Canberra and was really, really excited to be part of, you know, this new reform. Let's step back and give you some background about the Murray-Darling Basin and why it matters so much to so many. It's Australia's longest river system. It's home to more than two million people and it's Australia's food bowl, producing more than a third of our agriculture. The basin is awash with 30,000 wetlands that support 120 different water birds and 46 native fish species. The dry spell right now in Queensland and New South Wales is one of the worst in our history. Day zero is the day a town runs dry. There are many words to describe this drought. Heartbreaking. Currently in late 2019, Australia is gripped by a crippling drought, with bushfires raging in many states. In fact, the Bureau of Meteorology has declared the current drought in the Murray-Darling Basin the worst on record. Are we right? Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this news conference. Um, 
Uh, we have had a very good meeting. It was during the last record-breaking drought that the Howard government passed the Water Act, which committed $13 billion over 10 years to restore the health of the basin and return water for a sustainable environment. Rome's not built in a day and uh, water security is not achieved in a day. Uh, Murray-Darling Basin Commission was growing very fast as they were sort of trying to implement the National Water Initiative. There was lots of money being thrown around in water. It was in the middle of the drought, the last drought. Um, but there was a real sense of we're making really important change here. There was a real flavour of that throughout, not just the Murray-Darling Basin Commission, but with the state governments um, and the Australian government as well. Chief Executive Wendy Craig says the Commission is now setting up contingency plans. Contingency measures to save evaporation and losses like disconnecting wetlands. We're really going to be trying to manage our water as best we can. And from the Commission, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was born. It's essentially an agreement between the federal government and the state governments of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia on how to best use the water in the basin and to reverse the historic over-allocation of irrigation licences by putting water back into the river for the environment. The plan was an ambitious and brave reform that legislates the water needs of the environment based on the best available science. Publicly, it received bipartisan support. Today, under the Gillard government, Australia, a century late, but hopefully just in time, has its first Murray-Darling Basin plan. The states had agreed to return 2,750 gigalitres of water to the river for environmental flows. They also agreed to spend $13 billion of taxpayers' money to buy back water licences, fix leaky pipes and build dams. But many farmers and irrigators rejected the plan at the time. So I led a water accounting project for a few years um, and had my third child. Um, he's got kidney issues. So I took nearly two years off work um, to look after him. And, um, and when I came back into the, what was then the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, they were just about to launch the basin plan. I came back just as they were releasing the guide to the basin plan, which was the famous... Um, book burning in Griffith. Where police have been called in to control a large crowd that has gathered for a community water meeting. Burn the plan! Burn the plan! And it was a completely different organisation from the Murray-Darling Basin Commission where I'd left. Everyone seemed really, really traumatised. Um, getting the basin plan to that point had clearly damaged a whole lot of people. They were tasked with this enormous task and getting something done very, very quickly. Um, it was the analogy I used is it's like a bushfire has gone through here, and some people are picking up d different services. You know, like you know, getting the delivering the post, and making sure the water's running, and you're not sure if it was chaotic, if it was always that chaotic, or if it was as a result of this. You know, whatever's happened to the organisation. It became clear very quickly that the plan was beset by compromise. New South Wales, the largest basin state, frequently threatened to walk away from the basin plan, which would render it meaningless. Well, you know, we all want to see an end to the wrangling over the Murray-Darling Basin, uh, but New South Wales has been very clear about this. We have done the heavy lifting when it comes to water reform 
uh, by any state. And it's during this time of deep compromise at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority that Marianne Slattery was tasked with developing policies to protect environmental water from being extracted by irrigators. She believed for a long time that she was working on environmental reform. There was an event at the end of 2014 when the Commonwealth's water, um, this is environmental water, was the only water in the system. It was coming out of the Gwaida River into the Bow and Darling and we knew it had been pumped by irrigators. Um, we thought at the time that it had been pumped legally and that was the, that was the narrative. Um, so I put my hand up to do this project and... Um, with it really, really quickly, within days, you could see that this water had been taken under conditions that were not legal. One person has since pled guilty and another case is still before the courts. Um, at the same time, I was having a look at the Bow and Darling. Um, there's some changes to the Bow and Darling water sharing plan in 2012 and that was basically allowing extraction of water in the river that, that means that in some conditions it actually stops the river running um, because of those changes. So I put together both of those things and presented to um, the, the board, the authority board, and the following day I presented to a group called the Northern Basin Advisory Committee, which was a group that um, was supposed to be advising the Murray-Darling Basin Authority on um, how to implement the Basin Plan and how to make changes to the Basin Plan. Um, but the Murray-Darling Basin Authority basically wasn't honest with them. It would give them misinformation, it would withhold information from them um, because they were just a thorn in their side. The day after I presented to the Northern Basin Advisory Committee, um, I was asked if I wanted to take a secondment with the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. They have a $3 billion portfolio, $3 billion worth of water. Um, I had been saying to them for years that, that there's a huge risk to their portfolio because of you know a whole lot of ways that they were being undermined. The Commonwealth? The Commonwealth, yeah, so taxpayers' money, a whole lot of ways that they were being undermined that they didn't even realise. And I had been itching for years to, you know, work with them and, and explain to them where all these risks are and how do you put mitigating strategies in place. Um, became clear very quickly in that the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder wasn't interested in understanding all these issues. Um, the message I got is that Commonwealth Environmental Water Office will just make the best out of what it's got and not address these other risks. Marianne initially reported the wrongdoing internally. That's common for most whistleblowers, according to a Griffith University study. It found that the majority of people reported wrongdoing internally first. That's right. As I said, most... Most people who become whistleblowers believe the system works. And so if the system works means you report it to the boss and maybe you know, maybe you know your boss isn't very receptive, so you, you report it to someone else inside the organization, maybe the you know, the boss's boss or the board of management or maybe there's some you know, HR or whatever. And so nearly all people who speak out 
use the internal systems first. Emeritus Professor Brian Martin says after the problem is reported internally, the whistleblower finds their work is being undermined and they are subject to gaslighting. And then the boss doesn't do anything and instead suddenly they start finding, oh, people aren't talking to them or their shifts have been changed or their applications for leave are not being approved or they're getting dressed down at a staff meeting and suddenly this person who's conscientious may actually start believing some of the things they're saying about them. You're not a good worker, you know, you're not you know, supporting the team, all these sort of things. But then when it comes really serious, it destroys their sense of the world. Their sense of the world previously was this, the world is just, that people who do the right thing are going to be not if rewarded, but at least recognized, acknowledged, and that the bad guys will suffer their just desserts. And what's actually happening is just the opposite. The bad guys are getting away with it. Things And psychologically, that's extremely distressing because suddenly your idea that the world is just and that goodness will triumph in the end is overturned. A similar thing happened to Marianne while she was in charge of implementing one of the policies written into the legislation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. In other words, it was written into law that this policy must be put into place. Um, so I had a small section and was given a policy area, area to work on and get implemented. Um, but there was um, a member of the senior executive who was absolutely determined that that policy wouldn't be implemented. While she wasn't told to stop work or bury the numbers, as she describes it, the validity of her work was being continually questioned and she double-check and triple-check the figures. So we'd you know, go through a process of getting a workshop with everyone together and going through his concerns and you know, say, well, you know, you were concerned about X, we've done this, we've consulted with everybody, we go through Y. And that went on for years, several years, and he would just led this sort of move of real um, gaslighting me, talking about me in um, you know, different um, executive directors and general managers' offices, and you know, he's got concerns, but it was never with me, it was always you know, as an aside. But what do you do when the problem you're trying to raise is this. Basically, none of the numbers in the Basin Plan add up. It's a mathematical impossibility, and they're trying to um, hide that fact. Yeah, and this particular policy is one of the things that they're using to, to, to mask paper over the cracks of these numbers not adding up. That the numbers in the Murray-Darling Basin Plan are a mathematical impossibility. If it was just a bad afternoon, you know, you don't get... If you're the sort of person that's that's diligent, intelligent, cares about honesty, you, you don't just go out and speak against your, your colleagues because of, you know, you know, a day or a week or something. You, you know, I went through every process that I thought I had to do and, and, and that all takes a lot of time. So I can honestly say that I exhausted everything you know, so years of sort of wasted work, if you like, by doing these stupid, you know, processes to prove something to someone that just doesn't want the policy implemented and hasn't got the decency to actually tell you why. Yeah. But it was something that's written into the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So it's supposed to have been implemented. Um, it's not. 
and um, they just had the wrong person working on it because I was trying to do it properly and I wasn't going to compromise because well one that was my job um, and it's a really important policy. Halfway through her secondment to the Commonwealth Water Holder Authority, known by bureaucrats as the CHU for short, the MDBA put Marianne on so-called gardening leave rather than have her finish the secondment. When I left the CHU, um, my boss at the CHU, who's a really lovely man, he, um, he said to me, you know too much and you care too much. At the end of the five months, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority paid Marianne a voluntary redundancy and she left the public service after 12 years. Um, we had a free-range hen business, so we had about a 1,000 hens at the time. And it was a really lovely lifestyle. I got to just hang out with Leo and go and collect the eggs, look after the chooks, grow all my own veggies um, and then just, you know, deliver eggs to restaurants and cafes and fruit shops while I went to pick the other kids up from school and it was just a really lovely way to live but very insular. And at the worst of my time at MDBA, um, I would find myself, you know, sitting down and doing the numbers and thinking about can I make a living out of just the hens and go back to do the hens and that was a, a sign to me that you just turn your back on the world. And at MDBA, part of the curse, I suppose, was knowing so much, knowing just how bad it was, how corrupted the system was, you know, understanding politically what was happening, understanding what was happening to people, knowing how rotten it is and what a colossal waste of taxpayers' money um, and what a travesty this whole reform is not just its impacts on the environment, but its impacts on people and in communities. Um, so do you do something with that knowledge or do you just turn your back on it and, and look after yourself and raise chickens? Um, <laughs> um, they were sort of my only two choices, really. At Lake Hume, near the New South Wales-Victorian border, a confronting sight for locals. Dozens of dead fish, they say, like they've never seen before. Fast forward to 2019 and millions of dead fish are floating at Menindee Lakes. There isn't enough water to grow fodder. And half of Australia's breeding dairy, beef and sheep herds are being sold to China or slaughtered. The South Australian Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin found gross negligence and maladministration and called for a complete overhaul of the plan. A Royal Commission report into the Murray-Darling Basin plan that makes accusations of maladministration and gross negligence. And the crossbench senators from South Australia are not happy about it. We'll get into the details more in the next episode, but coincidentally, both these South Australian senators are not just heavily involved in the Murray-Darling Basin issues. Both senators have experience with whistleblowers and can understand why someone like Marianne would contemplate a quiet life of raising chickens. Uh, hi, I'm Centre Alliance Senator Rex Patrick. Senator Rex Patrick is also a former whistleblower. So I blew the whistle on a security breach uh, by Naval Group, who are the designers and builders of our future submarine. After they won the contract, I revealed uh, through the media that they had accidentally or somehow uh, managed to not 
uh, appreciate that a significant amount of highly sensitive data relating to an Indian Navy submarine program had made its way out of their doors in France, uh, had made its way to Malaysia, and then somehow had made it uh, to Australia to me. But he says not all whistleblowers have a soft landing. In this instance, uh, I was uh, protected well in that uh, I, at the time, was working for Senator Xenophon as a staffer. And luckily, I was uh, uh, immune from any pressure from the Prime Minister or from the Defence Minister or from anyone inside government that uh, felt like uh, I should go. Um, Senator Xenophon was adamant that I'd done the right thing and it turned out under the act in which uh, I was employed as his advisor, only he could sack me. So, in so, that, so you had a job and you had a team backing you? That's correct, and that's, uh, that's the important thing. So I'm, uh, in some sense, uh, an example of a whistleblower um, who um, was protected. I, I'm the good whistleblower story. Hello, everybody. Um, Senator Rex Patrick recently shared the stage with fellow South Australian Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young at a rally on the lawns of Parliament House in Canberra to support whistleblowers. We are here because for far too long, journalists in this country have been losing their rights to do their job. Whistleblowers in this country have been losing the protection to do what it is that they feel compelled to do. Hi, my name's Sarah Hanson-Young. I'm a Green Senator from South Australia. Senator Sarah Hanson-Young has had many dealings with whistleblowers, particularly from Australian contractors working at offshore detention centres on the Pacific islands of Nauru and Manus Island. I was thinking back to to one fellow that was very important um, in exposing uh, the sexual abuse towards women and children inside uh, the detention centre. And uh, he... um, He really struggled for a long, long time uh, to be able to get any work. Um, He he was ostracised by his colleagues. Uh, There's no way he would ever be given employment under any other contractor who had a contract with the federal government, whether it was in uh, detention centre services or indeed uh, many of the other services that these companies cover uh, as a security guard. He was totally ostracised and for and for what? Because he dared to speak the truth and to actually help look after the vulnerable women and children that were there. Um, often in these government contracted situations, there is only a small handful of the companies. Australia is relatively a small place when it comes to business and industry. So he was pretty much blacklisted. Um, and I, as I was thinking about this this week, knowing I was going to speak to you, I um, actually reached out and he's, he's just now in, he's still uh, desperate to find a job. He's tried to set up his own business now and a consultancy and he's had to do that all off the back of um, not having any uh, financial support. This is almost uh, seven or eight years later and it has been a very, very difficult road for him. For Marianne, the years of being questioned and undermined in her workplace also took its toll. I mean, there was one time that I actually had a, a full-on panic attack. I didn't know. I was driving the car. I thought I was having a heart attack. You know, my arm, I couldn't move my left arm. I had this really bad pain in my heart. And I dropped all the three kids off at daycare and just said, can you just keep them here while I go to the hospital? 
Um, and they, you know, put me in and did all the heart testing, but I honestly thought I was having a heart attack and it was a panic attack, you know. Um, yeah, so not fun. Transparency International's Serena Lillywhite says even if people aren't put in jail, the protracted court cases and loss of personal and professional reputation serve as a chilling effect for other whistleblowers. These are all really worrying trends and, and in my mind, indicate a fairly systemic shift towards a much more secretive uh, government in Australia. When you see these sorts of legislative changes taking place, when you see AFP raids on our major media outlets, uh, when you see whistleblowers facing up to 161 years in jail, you know, the, the chilling effect on the, of this is... is quite extraordinary and it goes hand in hand with a broader push to in many senses really silence civil society in Australia. There have been studies where they ask people would you do it again would you speak out again and some people say no because it's been too costly and they realize they haven't made a difference Uh, but a lot of people a lot of people whistleblowers say yes they do it again because they feel better about themselves despite All the things that happened to them, they still feel they did the right thing. Whistleblowers are unlikely heroes, vital even for a healthy democracy. But is the professional and personal cost worth it? Ben Oquist, the Executive Director at the Australia Institute, says the lucky whistleblowers are those that can find a job and a team. So how exactly did Marianne arrive at the Australia Institute as their senior water researcher? Yeah, I was uh, approached by a, um, a colleague and a philanthropist who uh, knew of uh, Marianne's background and knew of the Australia Institute's work and said, I'd like to um, support Marianne at least initially. Ben Oquist says blowing the whistle is really just the tip of the iceberg. He credits the philanthropist with seeing an opportunity to stop all of Marianne's institutional knowledge and professional expertise from going to waste. It's always a big leap of faith to start a new project in a think tank. Um, People often ask uh, how we decide what issues uh, to work on. And ultimately, as a think tank, we can work on whatever issues we want, uh, as long as they fit within our constitution and our research tax deductibility status. However, we have to decide, um, is it an important issue? Um, Can we make a difference? Um, and uh, is anybody else working on it? Uh, Can we raise some funds to support the work? And I've decided most importantly, is there the right person to work on the issue? And that's what what we were presented with, a a really important issue, a great public policy failure in Australia, $13 billion spent and potentially the health of the um, Murray-Darling actually made worse. Obviously important. The Australia Institute not only gave Marianne a job where she could continue working in her field of expertise, but it also provided a team around her. Marianne, do you want a cup of tea? Who are you? What have you done with Rob? <laughs> <laughs> Marianne once asked me for advice on um, what should she say on the radio. You had an indication of no scatology? Oh, no, no scatological references. Yeah. <laughs> First time Peter Hannum um, spoke to me on the phone and I said, 
bullshit or something, and it ended up on the oh, front yeah. page of the Sydney Morning Herald in the heading. Oh, it did have something like, you know, complete <laughs> crap. <laughs> and then I thought, that's clearly not true. I would never have said that. What I would have said is it's complete fucking crap. <laughs> do you feel that the government's response has been adequate? Absolutely not. We do not feel like we've been heard enough. Um, you know, there is people leaving the land out our way, um, millions of fish dying, and yet it was only after videos went viral um, that we put up that we had anyone come out and visit us, and I think that's really disappointing. In the next episode of How to Make a Whistleblower, what has Marianne Slattery achieved with the backing of a job and a team? How did she help regional communities living and working in the basin? We'll talk to farmers, irrigators, politicians and journalists who all come to Marianne Slattery as a resource on how to navigate the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and find the information buried in bureaucraties. Marianne's knowledge, understanding and ability to explain complex concepts and questions around specifically modelling and hydrology has been invaluable, completely invaluable. More than that, she's an excellent uh, support and someone who quite often uh, will ring on a weekend or, or I'll call her. You know, we, we need heroes like Marianne. Don't miss it. Subscribe now and listen on your favourite podcast app. This episode was written and produced by me, Jennifer Macy. Additional production by Lizzie Jack. The executive producer is Anna Chang at the Australia Institute. For more information on this podcast and the Australia Institute's research on the Murray-Darling Basin, go to our website. That's tai.org.au. Thanks for listening. <laughs>